0: let's open our Bibles to Isaiah one more time, Isaiah 61. This is going to be the final Isaiah sermon, um, I suppose, and uh, this is kind of my finishing point of a little mini-series that I sort of off-roaded through Isaiah um, during Christmas time, during the December month, and covering what has been called the Servant Songs, and we're going to cover a brief little paragraph from Isaiah 61, which is not a classic Servant Song in the way that people cast it, but it's so um, popular and well-known and descriptive of, descriptive of Jesus' message and ministry that people really highlight this as um, the Son of God spoke 700 years B.C., before Christ, speaking about what he was going to do and why he was going to do it. And the fact that he spoke so like sort of profoundly clear about what exactly he was going to do, it ties the Bible together with great precision. It gives confidence in scripture, in prophecy, being fulfilled, confidence that we have the true Messiah, that people say, you know, this is like a servant song. So this is, this is Jesus in the Old Testament talking about himself. And so I couldn't resist but to go there and for us to sort of feel this passage together before I go back into Matthew next week. Let's, let me just read it. Um, it's, I'm going to take verses 1 to 3. 1 to 3 from Isaiah 61. This is Jesus, the Messiah, speaking in the times of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Just awesome text, right? Fantastic. This is what, I hear I overuse this title, Uh, that's what some of the men that met with me this week about the sermon said, but this is Jesus' raison d'etre. That's my kind of title, his reason for being, the French um, sort of phrase, reason for being. It's his purpose on earth. This is a popular topic in our culture because people feel purposeless in the digital media where they're comparing their lives against everybody's perfection life that they can cast in in a proverbial photo album about what is so great about life, it's as if there's no hardship or nothing difficult about life because life is about being on vacation or whatever. But people get lost in terms of, you know, the what have coulda, shouldas of life. I should have studied this way, done this. What if I had lived that way? What if my life took this detour or that? I mean, people are swimming in that misplaced purpose fog. And I think it does lead to a... Kind of a digression of spirit, a depression, a depletion, a lack of willpower. I was listening to a podcast on this, sort of to catch into how society is thinking. And this one um, podcaster, who's a, uh, a a doctor and a, a professor from Stanford, was talking about a a brain scan, um, neurological brain scan test that's been um, seen. Lately, it's scanning this part of the brain. It's the anterior mid-cingulate cortex. It's the two um, sort of pockets in your brain on either side of your, your brain and on uh, skull. And the scan shows for those who are unwilling to do hard things in life. Not just once, they might try something hard but then stop. Those people had, where they were scanned over the years, the sort of beginning, middle, and end of their life, they had small versions of anterior mid cingulate cortex. It was small. And for those who, on the other hand, were the go-getters who were willing to do something hard and then do something hard again, and that could be defined in any category, whether athletically, intellectually, emotionally, whatever, you're a survivor and you're a doer and you do it again. You don't just do something hard, like work it out and you go, I like this, and then it becomes something you enjoy, that doesn't grow this, but if you do something hard and you face another challenge and another challenge, you're willing to live that way your area of the brain grows. It's the idea that the anterior mid cortex is like a willpower muscle in your brain that either grows or atrophies throughout your life. Now, as interesting as that may be or theoretical in the physiology, what does that have to do with our Christian life? To live just for big brains or high-functioning willpower It might be cool, but it also has its own terminus, right? Ecclesiastes counsels us that life is just going in cycle and it ends. And really, we have to have a a context where we see beyond this life to God and have eternity in our hearts to grow in that way. But whatever you think about the physiology of willpower, it is interesting to understand that Christ calls us to yield our will to do hard things. One thing that this study recognizes that I appreciate it is that life is in the main hard and hardship, that the digital life is not really real life. Life is hard. You're all carrying something in your heart and life right now. You're facing a challenge that's before you, and you as a believer would have God in Christ calling you to face that challenge and to grow therein. Christ himself says, lose your life to gain it. Follow me, deny yourself, a call to self-denial in and of itself for his glory, and that's part of our growth in following him as our life's end. I bring all that up to say this, Jesus Christ is not asking you to do anything that he didn't first do himself. He denied himself. He came down here to follow the hard path of ministry. Sure, it was satisfying to him to be obedient to the Father's will, but he was met with struggle, met with passion, met with external temptations, met with things that he had to survive, met with accusation, met with doubt, met with rejection, met with Gethsemane, where he knew he would face the cross and the wrath judgment to be absorbed by him, and he had to yield his will to follow this hard path. You want to talk about somebody who probably had a large whatever I'm saying, anterior mid-cingulate cortex. I mean, that thing had to be huge because he kept doing hard things. We're to follow in this wake of what Christ pioneered. We're to follow in his path. And learning from this series, these series of verses can help us to do that, to recognize what his reason for being is, to recognize what our reason for being is likewise as well. Again, I said this is a servant song. I'm just classifying it that way. It's number five in the sense that Isaiah was preaching to a group of people that were depleted in hope. They were drained in terms of the future because they knew that they were in next phase going to Babylonian captivity. It's like being, you know, sort of in a, you can't leave town, you're, you're, you're under a probationary status, but you're going to be going to prison mode. That's where they were in their hearts And so, Isaiah is speaking, Christ is speaking through Isaiah, I should say, to say, hope is found in a person, hope is found in me. Look to Jesus. And we all need that person defining hope in Jesus. What's profound is that Jesus, again, was saying these things 700 years before he was going to show up physically It shows the transcendence of the son of God. He's bigger than time, but he's also operating within time. He's transcendent outside of time. God in Christ is, and he is immediately present within time. He's outside of your world. He sees the end from the beginning. He's got the whole thing in his hands, and yet he's walking right there with you at the same time. That's the dynamic that you see as Jesus is talking about himself as having done this ministry in the past tense, though he's 700 years before he's showing up. Let alone we're going to tie this to Luke 4, where that. Prophecy is written down by Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which was the Son of God speaking it about himself, and he's going to read this scroll about himself in real time. God, Jesus up here speaking at 700 BC, Jesus now down here on earth reading what he said about himself as the initiation of the mission that he as a fate accompli will accomplish because he's reading it in past tense about what he's about to do. It blows our minds. That's why I couldn't resist this text. It's God's will working itself out, and it's what we're called to follow. I want to investigate this mission, looking through it in terms of three perspectives, um, through the eyes of the Israelite in Isaiah, and then in Luke's account, through the eyes of a Nazarene, um, someone who's from Nazareth sitting there, listening to Jesus, and then finally through the eyes of a modern-day Christian. This mission defines Jesus' um, mission, and I want it to be more than a Bible study lesson that's cool because it kind of fits together. I want it to be something that you ask yourself, do I believe in this mission by conviction? Is this mission my mission? If you're taking notes, we're seeing Christ raison d'etre through three sets of eyes. Through three sets of eyes, and the first set of eyes or seeing the Messiah through the eyes of the Israelites. It's verses 1 to 3 is what I'm covering, but the mission is empowered by the Spirit. I want to begin there. By the way, these three verses are Trinitarian. Uh, The Trinity is not a word that's used in Scripture, though the Trinity is in and through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. We have acknowledgement and real encounters with the three members of the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, three Persons who are one God, three members who are equally um, equal in status, power, in substance. This is the triune God. And God the Spirit is mentioned. The Lord is mentioned. God the Father, capital L O R D. And then Jesus is the one speaking. This is a Trinitarian paragraph. Super important to. Understand people will veer off in heresies that are wrong. They'll believe God is a shapeshifter, taking on one form of the, the Godhead at a time. That's not true. We know at Christ's baptism... It was a three encountered where you have Christ in the water, you have God the Father speaking and the Spirit descending as a dove, all in one encounter. Um, the modalism is heresy. Tritheism is heresy as well, believing that all three members of the Trinity are, are God at the same time. Um, no, it's one God, three persons. And how you understand that is just to say it like the Bible says it and leave it there. <laughs> you want to stay Bible, um, otherwise you can drift off trinitarian thought is in and through this it says the spirit of the lord verse one the lord god is upon me this is jesus second member of the trinity talking about the third member of the trinity that is upon him meaning jesus whole ministry was going to be energized affirmed empowered by the holy spirit jesus though he's god fully powerful in and of himself was yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit as the perfect human, fully human, fully God. He models for us what it looks like to be yielded to and energized by and moved by the Holy Spirit. It's just important to understand that. Jesus himself acknowledges this in this prophecy the spirit of gods upon me just like how the spirit of god the ruach of the old testament which uh, is a synonym for wind uh, the, the 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 person of the godhead the holy spirit is the one who moved upon the waters over the surface of the earth at creation genesis 1:2 the earth was without form or void and void and darkness was over the face of the deep the spirit of god verse 2 of our canon introduces the Holy Spirit to us, was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the same Holy Spirit who energized Elijah to preach, um, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, the whole prophetic ministry, Deborah. Um, These are are people who spoke the Word of God by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon Elijah, I believe, at Mount Carmel, so he was able to slay the prophets in mass. The Spirit of God that came upon Samson, we know that story where he Slay, uh, slew the Philistines the Spirit of God in like manner came upon Jesus empowering Him we know when He cleansed the temple I believe He did that in the in Samson-like power display by the Holy Spirit the kings of the Old Testament exampled by David had the Holy Spirit in his life Saul even had the Spirit of God rushing in and out of his life whatever we believe about Saul's um, you know eternal condition, we know that David as a believer said in, in Psalm 51, take not your what? Holy Spirit from me. Meaning the anointing as a king where he had empowered um, discernment to lead. That's the, that's the reference to the Holy Spirit's work in his life as a king in the Old Testament under that theocracy. Those were all empowered Um, examples of empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus is saying happened to him. But secondly, you have a mission empowered by the Spirit, and then you have a mission endorsed by the Father. This is what the Israelite is seeing. They're going, okay, the Spirit of God is going to um, come upon Messiah, and the Spirit of God is going to empower Messiah. And this is, um, or I should say, empower Messiah, and then be endorsed by the Father in his mission. What do I mean by that? There's an empowerment and there's an endorsement. You see that in verse one, because the Lord, the Lord is or has anointed me. So the spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. And then we have this reference, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, meaning the father, the first person of the, the Godhead is anointing me. What is that a picture of? Well, remember when David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, he was chosen as the final son who was out in the field and ultimately Samuel poured that horn of oil completely lathering all over and dripping down over David to set him apart symbolically as king. That is a physical foreshadowing of this where Messiah is anointed by God the Father, And we hear of that expression as he was baptized and and the spirit descended upon him. This is my beloved son. That's a coronating um, anointing of God the Father, a verbal declaration that he was set apart as Messiah. What was he set apart to do? Look at this. um, To bring good news to the poor. This is the father's endorsement. This is what you're supposed to do, son. This is your raison d'etre, son to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, this is God the Father has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Let's stop there. What, what does this ministry look like? Well, first of all, it's very proclamation heavy. Um, what we do as a Christian where we help people physically is important. It's equally, if not more important that we give them truth while we're doing it. Um, we're not just, you know, um, sort of doing things on a social level. We need to speak truth for hearts to be changed. It's bringing good news, bringing good tidings or the gospel to people who are poor, those who are afflicted, those who are suffering, those who are open to the message. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, the The picture is, you know, it, it gives a nod to physical help, but really we're talking about hearts that are broken. People that need um, to have a bleeding heart um, cauterized or helped, a wound to be triaged. Someone who's bleeding out, they need a tourniquet, they need help in the moment, and Jesus came to give that help. He healed the masses, but He did so to present Himself as a Savior who could heal the heart. He's the good Samaritan of that parable. He's the one who, through us, um, should bind up broken hearts, people who are poor and in need. It's a picture also of being in a dungeon. People are not only broken inside, they also feel locked up inside, bound up as if imprisoned in their own sin, in their own hopelessness. They, They not only need healing, they need deliverance and help. I mean, you think of the Israelite that was bound up under Pharaoh, those that needed rescue. The whole book of Exodus is about being redeemed, being brought, brought out of slavery, bought out of slavery, delivered. And we have the ability, and Christ is saying that he came to do this as a, like a field general, going behind enemy lines, unlocking the dungeon door and letting people out, freeing people from things. The idea of being in bondage of your sin, something, uh, you know, the spell can't be broken, the hopelessness of what's happened. I'm locked up in guilt. The gospel is what brings the saving element to what's gone wrong in someone's life. What's gone wrong in your life. He's the key. And Jesus came to do that. Remember the hymn, um, and can it be? where John Wesley said, and can it be, in other words, how can this be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's like, I can't even believe it. I was pursuing death. I I was all wrong, going this direction, and I was intercepted. Then verse four, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. It's just, I can follow Jesus because he pursued me. Jesus did come. He came to set people free. It's a worthy mission. It's a life's mission for the Christian. You should be looking for people to unlock, to help, to speak a word of encouragement to, speak about the Lord openly and freely because that's the key that could unlock someone's heart or that's the salve that could heal a hurting wound, a bleeding wound. Well, not only is there this empowerment by the Spirit, this endorsement by the Father, there's a mission that was engaged by the Son. It's the big picture of all these things. Look at verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Stop there. Right in that verse, you have the first and second comings of Christ. If you were doing a timeline, you would see the first. Time Jesus came 2,000 years ago to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's his first coming. That's his three-year mission of proclamation. But then he'll come again. This is the second coming and the day of vengeance of our God. That's Revelation 19 where he'll slay the nations, the enemies, those who've spurned his offer. And he will slay them as with a wine press having grapes crushed. That's the picture of Revelation 19 at the end, the two-edged sword. He came as the lamb first, though. It was an offer that he received, and while he was offering himself, he also demanded holiness. He demanded a complete following of a wholehearted sort of submission in discipleship. And those who wouldn't do that ultimately were storing up wrath against them where he'll come again with fiery angels, recompense and revelation. How is this comforting then? Look at verse 2. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, we get that. That's comforting. And then the day of vengeance of our God, how is that comforting? It's comforting because we don't have to avenge anything. That's why it's comforting. He, does, he brings the vengeance he avenges the wrongs done to him, he avenges the wrongs done to you. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not for us to do. Romans twelve, nineteen says, Never avenge yourselves, beloved, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's taking the burden of vengeance off of you. You don't have to be angry, you don't have to be bitter. You can release that to the Lord and should we're commanded to. The Israelites were going to be under Babylonian captivity. They were going to be um, incarcerated, but their spirits didn't have to be, and they weren't left hopeless. Look at verse 3. It says, to grant those who mourn in Zion. You're going to mourn, Israelites. You're going to be very sad. Life is this hard. It says, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. It's hard, but not hopeless. You're going to get a king's crown in heaven one day. And you need to wear that crown by faith even if you are locked up in Babylon. That's life. That's the Christian life. Embrace the hardship. Back to that sociology illustration I was bringing about the brain, the whole thing I loved about that is the idea that hardship is real and hardship can be to your benefit if you're willing to face hard things. But as Christians, we can be willing to face hard things that we know are divinely appointed for us to face, and we face them for our not just brain development, but more and most importantly, our spiritual development to be like Christ as we face things and face things and face things as we venture forth step by step in the empowerment and the calling and the mission of the Holy Spirit, the Father endorsing our mission, the Spirit empowering our mission to face hard things, but not with a like at the end of my life, that was all I lived mindset, but with a eternal life mindset that like verse three says, you get a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. You don't have to stay down in your spirit. You can understand that as Christ was set apart and anointed, you've been set apart and anointed for your ministry. You likewise have this anointing in your life. You're a co-equal heir of Christ. Look at this, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're equipped. You have Christ's sort of uh, robe as a symbol that you are his now. And that's promise, promise for eternity. This is for the remnant of Israel, but this is applied to the church as well. And it says that they may be called oaks of righteousness. What does that mean? And it says the planting of the Lord. You've ever seen an oak tree, you recognize that you're really only seeing the top, you know, twenty percent of this tree. This tree is going wide and deep with thick, you know, maybe three feet around roots underneath, you know, the slabs of concrete or rock that are getting like destroyed as the roots are going out strong, maybe a mile in length to hold this tree up. Trees are amazing, but oak trees, and especially them, are these sort of rock of Gibraltar. you know, statues that will not be moved I mean, unless you mow them down with a chainsaw. But what I'm saying is the, the oak is a picture of something that is supposed to outlive you and your legacy here on earth will outlive you. Saying that to the Israelites, you might go into Babylonian captivity, but your faith will live on and your legacy will live on even into eternal heaven. All this so that he, the son, may be, glorified. It's amazing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all on display in glory from this fulfillment echoing throughout the ages of heaven. Let's fast forward now to Luke's account of this. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I just want to read this uh, section. It's uh, beginning at verse 16. To read down through verse 22. This is the narrative. This is story time. Let's gather up for family worship story time about Isaiah 61. We've learned the the theology of it. Now let's learn a story. Verse 14 and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So that's that northern region, 70 miles north of uh, Israel. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So he's he's going to church. He's going to church. He's a traveling evangelist and he's going to churches or the synagogues in Jewish speak. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. To say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? I love this text in light of the connection from the Old Testament, 700 years BC to this moment. As I've already explained, it's profound that Jesus, in the normal flow of Going to the religious centers on the Sabbath connected the dots of his Messiahship and His reason for being from the prophet Isaiah. It's seeing Messiah through the eyes of the Nazarene. That's point two. And it begins with a mission in the context of worship. This is Jesus. He's showing up. He's going to church, just like we're coming to church on Resurrection Sunday. He was going to the Sabbath worship. We gather as congregations in the tradition of the Sabbath worship of the Jewish tradition. There were believing Jews who would go and would worship genuinely and would hear the Word of God. And the Word of God would be read. That's why we do the reading of God's Word in that tradition. It's New Testament prescribed, but it's also part of that um, practice, that regular practice of coming under the reading of God's Word and then As in synagogue um, worship, you would have the rabbi who would stand up, would read, maybe take a posture of sitting and would speak and explain the word of God. Jesus in this setting is the boy who grew up like in Nazareth, right? That's where he was a young boy. He was trained at Christian school. As the 12-year-old, we know that he went and uh, sat under the scribes and teachers of the law. He was top of his class. Uh, the testimony of uh, the Gospels is that he grew in wisdom, knowledge, favor with God, favor with man. He had a, a you know, Paul and Timothy, he had the Timothy-like um, reputation. He was like Daniel, Joseph, but this is the perfect son of God who knew the word of God and had godly character and was known throughout the region, yet the carpenter's son, and uh, just earthy and at his hometown and showing up to church, and the attendant gave him the scroll he's 30 years old he's a rabbi like i don't know if he had that title officially people called him that and i don't know if he asked for isaiah or not but that's what the attendant gave him and as soon as he had that scroll he's scanning through you know as a scroll i don't know how hard that would be to find the passage that we call isaiah 61 they weren't numbered that way but he finds and locates that text why Well, it's because it's about him. Jesus had spoken that text 700 years before, and now he's reading what was dictated from him through the Holy Spirit to Isaiah, out of the mouth of Isaiah, and then onto this scroll written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Isaiah that, Isaiah, you know, that scroll that was written then is the same Written word that we have here. It's the same book of the Bible. That's just amazing to think we have the same words that Jesus was reading of himself. As the Son of Man, he's saying, I want to read this. And he read it, and it was about him. This is his reason for being, and it's all in the context of regular, normal worship. Why are we in this text today? What is God speaking to you about today? How is he working in your life in the providence and in the timing of this Lord's day, this specific day where this word is open to you? When we move on to the context of scripture, verses 18 and 19, this is what was proclaimed. I'm not going to reteach this because I just taught it from the Hebrew rendering in Isaiah 61. This is the Greek um, rendering. But it is important to just note that Jesus used Scripture to validate who He is. I mean, how important is the Bible? It's very important. We don't worship the Bible, but we reverence the Bible. We know that Jesus reverenced Scripture. When He fought the battles against Satan... He said, it is written, it is written, it's written. He had just done that for 40 days, starving himself in the wilderness, the desert wilderness, attacked by Satan, tempted by Satan externally, of course, not sinfully internally, but externally. And he warded off Satan's temptations with the word of God by quoting scripture. False teachers, false religions, cult groups always create the new revelation. They don't go back to the Old Testament to ground the Messiah, who he is. They have to create some new idea because they have a new Messiah. Jesus is saying, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. What I was speaking down through Isaiah to those Israelites that were facing Babylonian captivity 700 years ago, that's what I'm referencing now about who I am right now. He's connecting the dots using the Old Testament scripture. It's what we have ourselves. And it's amazing that God has preserved it for us because it's inspired providentially. It's there. The apostles in the New Testament were promised that they would be able to recall the things that Jesus taught to them in their time of need. And they did have that recall. That's why we have the gospels. That's why we have the teachings and the doctrine from the gospel teachings of Christ, which are the New Testament letters. We have all of that. We have the book of Revelation. So we know where things are going and how it's all going to end up. And that Jesus wins in the end. All of this is God's mission according to Scripture. Thirdly, it's a mission within the context of fulfillment. Within the context of fulfillment, it, this was going to happen. There's a hushed silence here probably in this setting, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I love that verse. This could be my favorite part of the whole study. Just how, and I am using the word reverently, the word cool. Jesus was cool in this moment. I mean, he was what the word originally means. I mean, he was steady. He was just calm, showing up, giving a a Bible scroll, finding the text he wanted to say, connecting the dots that this was about him, speaking it, rolling it up, giving it back, and sitting down. Now, He probably also taught because it says they marveled at what he was saying. But it's just the description of just pressures off of him, the pressures on what did the word of God say. I mean, that's how you live out a mission like this. You use the Bible as your shield, as your defender, as your sword. You just give truth. I was thinking during the worship time, you know, I feel comfortable in my reason for being because I just open the Bible and do this and I do it with regularity. I've disciplined habits that carry me through the preparation period every week and weekend. That's just how I do it and how I roll and I just functionally give the word of God and the Bible does a lot of work and a lot of stuff that I don't know about that people read later or hear about or or connect in Bible studies or You do your own Bible study, and the Word of God does the work. The pressure is off of us as we live out our reason for being, as the way God designed us, as the way He created you, as He gave you particular gifts in administration, or as a worker, a doer, an intellectual, um, a servant, a manager, however He's wired you, a creator, somebody who's creative, a builder, an artist... Um, you should have this intersection with the word of God where the gospel is going out through your gifting and it's bringing about transformation in your world as you display Jesus through the way he made you. I mean, Jesus is, has written this, I mean, has, has spoken this and has read this and it's as if he's saying, of course, this is what I would say about Myself, what did he say? Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's happened. What does he mean by that? Remember, the prophecy from Isaiah 61 said two things were going to happen. Jesus was going to come and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But if you look back in Isaiah 61, I want to show you this curious a deletion in what Jesus did when he read it in the synagogue because it says in verse 2 of Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the very next phrase and the day of vengeance of our God he left that out when he read the scroll in the synagogue verse 19 of Luke 4 to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor and then didn't then he deleted or just Stopped, I should say, he didn't delete, he didn't take it out of the scroll, but he just didn't say anything about vengeance at that point. Why? It's because he was saying, everything that I've just read has been fulfilled. I'm here as my mission right now in my first arrival, my first coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here in the name of grace. Now, did Jesus bring accountability? Yes. Did he preach on judgment? Yes. Did he preach on hell? Yes. Did he say the, the Pharisees were committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and they were to the point of no return? Yeah, he did that too. He, he, you know, did he bring the accountability to the temple? Yes. I mean, he did all of that. But by and large, for three years, he opened himself up, brought heaven down to earth, healed the sick raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, gave hearing to the deaf, did all these things. He bound up the brokenhearted. He reached the hearts and the minds of the people. He did all these wonderful things to say, I'm here, I'm Messiah, believe on me. That was the year of the Lord's favor. And he's saying, as I've come, this is or has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus had been bar mitzvahed. He had the choice young man, as I mentioned, lived sinlessly, was publicly extolled as God's lamb by John the Baptist. He was affirmed by God the Father and the Spirit in his baptism. He also went through the temptations, passed them perfectly. And now he's saying, I am initiating this reason for being ministry. And all of this is fulfilled in your hearing now. This brings the hearers to a decision, and that's verse 22. This is my fourth point. Mission within the context of a decision. It's context of worship, scripture, fulfillment, and decision. How are they going to decide? Will they believe in Jesus and this fulfillment? Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus is very impressive. On the face of things, many people in the world love Jesus. More and more I'm seeing just on an open boilerplate, though, when I open the Internet up, some skeptical comment about truth or about Jesus or about what the Bible says or can you believe this or that. It's weird. It's weirdly injected into public media, trying to get into the, you know, the background of our psyche that, that this is something we should be skeptical of. It's odd in one sense. In the other sense, we think, why, why did it take so long? For something like this to be happening it's the call to apostasy it's the call to skepticism it's the call to believe but have some disbelief at the same time and this crowd is sitting there going didn't you know Jesus you know modern day didn't you know joshua that's sort of the modern translation for the word jesus didn't didn't he go to grace christian school didn't we know him i mean didn't wasn't he a basketball player didn't he wrestle or i mean who who is he saying he is? Is he saying that he is the Messiah of Isaiah sixty one? Is that well is that what just happened? Cause he's really impressive. Or he's kind of a marvel, but isn't he Joseph's boy? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Does he doesn't he work for, you know, the construction company? Isn't that wasn't he doing that? People will infuse all kinds of skepticism. I was introduced to a little video blurb of a woman who claimed to be a pastor preacher who was given a devotional, and she was reading from Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians 13, and she was reading it through, and she stopped and said, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read that part because that part's, that part's yikes. That part's yikes. What is that? It's like she's not responding to the word. She's editing the word on her feet. She is deleting from the Bible. That's what's wrong to do. And she was saying, you know, because of culture and because of the day, that's not in vogue today. And Paul really, when he wrote that, was being a jerk. That's a quote from this. That's an infusion of skeptical thinking against Scripture, against truth, and against God. It's wrong. and It's what people will do. You have to look at this skepticism as a warning and say, no, this is Messiah. This is my reason for being. Why would I say that? Well, let's go quickly to point three, which is seeing Messiah through the eyes of the Christian. Um, we see Messiah through the eyes of the Israelite, the Nazarene, and then the eyes of a Christian. This is just my way of wrapping things up with a few verses. Point one we have a mission by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, he's anointed. We too have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, 1 John 4. We have discernment. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk by faith, not by sight. We live by the illumined Word of God that shows us convictionally it's all true. We've been opened up to believe it and to say it. We believe, therefore, we speak. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ has opened our minds to believe it's true. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit, but we have the mind of Christ Okay, we have the Holy Spirit, we're we're set apart by him to do this work. Acts 1, 1 and 2, Luke said um, he was giving to Theophilus everything that Jesus had began to do and teach, that was the book of Luke, Um, Luke wrote that to Theophilus, but then he also wrote the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, the empowerment ministry of the Holy Spirit. The commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom they were chosen Acts one eight the Holy Spirit will come upon you we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and move us in ministry second ministry to preach the good news we're preaching the word of God like Stephen in Acts chapter six where he stood up even in the face of martyrdom in Acts six ten they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking we speak the good news First Corinthians two five we speak. Um, Not in plausible words of wisdom, verse 4, but in demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but the power of God. Third, we have a mission to present hope to others. You are called to bind up the brokenhearted. I was convicted this week to think not just in terms of the public ministry of the word, but the private ministry of the word. We're called to do the one-on-one. We're called to give the truth to hearts. First Thessalonians 5.14, we admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and we're patient with all men. We're urged to do that. Acts 28, 30, and 31. Paul, in um, his prison state house arrest, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You say, I don't have an opportunity to preach the gospel. Well, what about just being under house arrest in probation, you know, sitting there and people knew that he had the truth and the message, and Paul was willing to give it. We just do it and however we can do it. Write letters, send messages through digital media, pray for people, have an intercessory ministry. There's all kinds of ways to keep doing the work and giving hope to people. Finally, mission to prepare for Christ's return. We, we wait for the Lord's arrival. We proclaim the year of the Lord in the Lord's favor. And then also... Um, we're looking for his second advent where, again, we, we understand that Jesus is going to return and that there is a reckoning. Not only do we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but the day of vengeance of our God. There is vengeance that's coming. We warn people. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise at the trumpet, at the voice of the archangel, but Revelation nineteen eleven, listen to this. Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's coming. And that's a warning to unbelievers, and it's hope for all of us who are believers. Let's stand for final prayer and for our benediction. Father, we thank you for this time together coming under the truth. It's amazing to reverence the word of God in Isaiah 61 and to um, remember the connections that Christ made of himself, the power of his commitment to ministry, the yielded will and submission to live out as a um, follower of the Father's will, though the Son of God empowered by the Spirit. Moved in that way, that was a pioneering effort for us to follow. I pray that each person here would find their, their purpose in life, their reason for life in this text, in this calling, and would be comforted therein, and for those who yet need to know you, that they would yield themselves in faith, um, bowing their knee to follow Christ, as Christ who is Messiah, Savior of sins, and taken as Lord of their life Pray for conversions through your spoken word, through your written truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.